0: This week on the Hui, we speak to former addicts who are helping others break the cycle of drugs, crime and desperation. I came to the hub broken.
1: I guess I had given up on on myself. Everyone had.
0: Slash has impacted Te Tairawhiti for years. Will the findings of the ministerial inquiry into woody debris make a difference? Plus, we meet the Māori brothers
2: who prefer a kilt to a pew -pew. When you start getting better, you can appreciate the sound. You can just hear the different parts of the pipes.
3: When they first started, it was pretty awful.
0: And welcome back to the Hui. It's a vicious cycle keeping many of our wahine behind bars. Drug habits from childhood leading to a life of crime to pay for the habit. But a group of former addicts are trying to change that. Out of their own pockets, they're providing housing and drug counseling to those fresh from behind bars, all guided by Copapa Māori to help them build a new life on the outside. kaya Miriana Johnson, 10 Leslie
4: Allen never had the chance to live a normal childhood.
1: I've been an IV drug user since I was like 12, 13. It was that long ago when I was that young, I don't actually remember starting. Growing up on K Road in the
4: 90s, meth was becoming rife.
1: Cooking meth, selling meth, using meth, violence, gangs, all of that was just normalised for me, and it was like living in a movie.
4: Her father was supplying all of
1: Auckland Central. So my dad was a drug dealer and the whole city calls him Pa, because he fed a whole city. So I had to share my dad with everybody. Like, no one would ever sleep, okay? So everything was just always going. I was fresh to drugs, so taking meth meant that it hit me really, really hard. I found
4: it quite exciting. To pay for her habit, she was faced with two options, prostitution or crime. She chose crime gangs, robbery,
1: it was just a daily thing. So I was always caught up on a robbery charge.
4: At just 34 years old, Leslie has had 152 convictions. Caught in the cycle of drugs and offending, she spent the better part of a decade in prison. This became her home.
1: We as Māori people are now whakapapa back to jails now. Like, it's the only place that I would feel safe, I would get fed, that was my home and all my whanau was there. So the land that I feel that I used to belong to is Woody.
4: The turning point was her father overdosing.
1: My dad died with a needle hanging out of his arm. And that's when I decided that I needed to change because I have a 20-year-old. And the last thing I wanna do is give her that enormous weight to carry. And I was going down that road. I was an absent mother. I put addiction first, in and out of prison, involved with gangs. The last bit of the puzzle was for me to die with a needle hanging out of my arm.
4: In the small Northland town of Kaikohe, there's a glimmer of hope for those trying to get clean. I came to the hub broken. I guess
1: I had given up on, on myself. Everyone had.
4: Hefaka Oranga Whānau Recovery Hub is a community space with services for recovering addicts. At the end of that, I
5: kept coming back to this thing to make me feel better. It was called alcohol in a bottle. That made me feel valid for the day.
4: Stu Ao and Basina Pehe are former addicts turned counsellors. Since 2015, they've been running community-based programmes they've also worked on the inside. So they've seen how prison is a revolving door for many addicts. Everyone that's
5: come across from my experiences, they go back in because they haven't dealt with that addiction issue. Addiction plays a big part of escaping reality. It's a solution and an answer to just keep doing what they're doing until the point of some intervention.
4: And that intervention needed to happen in a new environment. The thing that was missing was the accommodation.
5: That was the piece that was missing between prison and being integrated into a community group out here. Where do they stay? And the only thing is that they went back into their old environments.
4: Stu and Bess set up this nine bedroom whare in South Auckland to provide accommodation for those getting ready for intensive drug rehabilitation. Most of them have come from the prison system. House host Noreen Johns knows the struggle. Jail was my
1: rock bottom. It woke me up. I thought, Wow! I realised what I'd done to my family.
4: Although she's been clean for five years now, working with addicts can be challenging.
1: I get triggered a lot. You know, with other people's behaviours, it reminds me about things that I did in the past.
4: How do you yeah. navigate that?
1: Cognitive behaviour therapy. I think because I've been in recovery so long. I've learned to use the tools of recovery every day, sometimes, um, minute by minute.
4: Maintaining routines is key for all of those in the whare. In addiction, a lot of us don't
1: do that. We can't even get out of bed some days, can't even get into the shower to, you know, wash
4: our not. And having a programme, having a routine, gets you motivated. Part of her daily routine is making her bed, the same way she did in prison.
5: Yeah, and the sugar. Want a hot drink,
4: bro? Raiha has been at the fuddy for a month and a half. And how's it been?
5: Uh, it's been all good, yeah. It's good being around people that are, like, want the same as you, eh? And, but, yeah, I do my
4: same. <laughs> this fuddy is a lifeline for those here, but Bess and Stu are clear it isn't just a place to crash. Everyone
5: that comes into our house, you have to do treatment. There's no ifs, buts, hums or has about it. No whore harness. You gotta go do treatment. It's been a a beautiful journey. Uh, It was really rough uh, and raw, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm slowly finding myself again.
4: The home is run without any government funding. Those who come into the home chip in for expenses, and it currently has a wait list of 12.
6: There's a need for pre- and post-treatment and safe houses. There's a need for that out there. We would like to develop more houses. Yeah.
4: Back in Kaikohe, it's a similar story. Upstairs of Hewhaka Oranga Hub is Freedom Whare, a boarding house with 13 beds.
1: We don't have many beds. We have a waiting list that I'm long, and sometimes we don't know how we're going to get the next week done. (laughs) But we
4: do... we get it done. Leslie has been clean for about a year now. She has her first job, leading a pilot programme in the north testing methamphetamine users for hepatitis C. No, well,
1: employment is, it's the key to breaking the cycle, and you've got to do something that you love. Like, I love testing people for hepatitis C because I'm an IV user. So that's how you keep clean, and that's how you break the cycle, is by giving someone an opportunity to use their bad habits and their past experience to help others.
4: Today, she's speaking to a group of final year nursing students about her recovery. Coming to the hub and coming to
1: Kai it changed my life.
7: <laughs>
4: Leslie has not only found a new farno, but she's finally in touch with her whakapapa. With wraparound support and services, she's been given a second chance at life, and she wants others to have that too.
0: Now, Corrections says all prisoners who complete an alcohol and drug programme in jail are offered ongoing recovery support for up to a year. 105 people took up the offer in the past year. Corrections has contracts with 12 community residential drug and alcohol care programmes, but not... He waka tai ora. nei Coming up next, our panellists, Eastland Wood Council Chief Executive Philip Hope and Manatayao Te Representative Manu Keri join us to discuss the Ministerial Inquiry's damning forestry slash report. Yoramaiano. Pine trees were touted as a lifeline for Taita in the wake of Cyclone Bola, stabilising the fenua and providing employment was part of its appeal. But the environmental cost has been too high, compounded by severe weather events. We'll look at what's next with our panel shortly. But first, let's recap how we got here. For years, Te Tai Rāwhiti
7: has felt the impacts of forestry slash. Millions of tonnes of it blanket beaches up and down the east coast.
5: Every time we get heavy rain now, more slash is deposited on the beach.
8: As a community, our resources have been impacted upon, as well as our wahitapu. tapu, so too is the wairua of our people.
7: And for years, the forestry industry has made promises to clean up its act.
1: Forestry companies are changing their practices around rotational harvesting, no clearfowl harvesting, they're retiring some of the areas of steep hill country. I don't think they care about the communities, I think they care about their balance sheets.
7: But it's taken almost three years for the government to finally hold a full-scale inquiry into SLASH in the wake of Cyclone Gabrielle. And the findings released last week we're damning. The report points to a number of failures from successive governments, the forestry sector and the Gisborne District Council.
1: And the potential for wide-scale land collapse becomes real. And then the potential for Ngāti Porou to be rendered homeless and
5: refugees in their own land could become a reality.
0: To discuss the Slash Report now, I'm joined from Whakatane by Manatai Taidavati representative Manu Caddy, and here in our studio by Eastland Wood Council Chief Executive Philip Hope. Tēnā Thank you both very much for your time. Let's start with you, Manu. What's your initial reaction?
8: I think we're pretty pleased with the report recommendations. The findings uh, addressed a number of the suggestions that we'd put in our submission and that were in the original uh, petition that launched the uh, inquiry. So overall, very um, impressed with some of the bold uh, suggestions. A few things that we didn't agree with, but sort of two-thirds we're very supportive of.
0: Okay, I want to get into the things you didn't agree with soon, but let's come to you, Philip. Your reaction? Uh,
6: In principle, the Eastland Wood Council... Uh, supports the recommendations, um, I think there is some uh, finer detail that's needed on some of the recommendations, for example um, restrictions on Clearfell harvesting, uh, we certainly agree with that in principle. Um, what we've wanted members to do is to go away and do some modelling and, and just see what that looks like because um, we need the industry to be viable, mm. we, the trees need to be harvested. And uh, we certainly agree in principle with, with the report, which is uh, really robust.
0: Yeah, because absolutely, trees keep growing no matter what happens. At some point, some, those trees have to come down.
6: Yes, uh, and we have a wall of wood coming. Uh, the trees which are due for harvest over the next sort of five to eight years were planted post cyclone Bola. If they're left in the ground, they just get bigger and heavier. The risk of um, slope failure is, is much greater. So I think we need to think about that as we determine what are the best practices, um, how much harvesting can be done at one time. And uh, we certainly agree around a risk assessment by catchment because each catchment is different and
0: um, I think that's the basis on which we need to go forward. Okay, I will come to that as well. Let's come back to you, Manu. The parts that were missed or the areas that you think haven't been covered or that you wanted to discuss, what were those I think
8: they covered most of the issues that we were concerned about, there were just some aspects that we felt probably let central government off the hook. Um, and uh, there were some strange suggestions around sort of appointing individuals basically to run the region, taking away the democratically elected council, and I think what we would like to see is more participation rather than concentrating power in a smaller group or in a, you know an individual. Um, So that was some of the stuff that we were concerned about. But overall, pretty pleased, um, and it did address a number of those issues. And as Philip said, um, there's some work to be done.
0: Mm. The Gisborne District Council, Manu, did come in... Uh, for some response and uh, for some criticism, quote, capitulation to the permissiveness of the regulatory regime and its under-resourced monitoring and compliance. Why not then do something a little bit more independent with the responsibilities that the council has?
8: Yeah, I thought that really missed the mark. and it was quite a ridiculous suggestion in many ways that, you know, they, what they were really looking at was the council behaviour when Hekia was a cabinet minister in a government which let the industry essentially write their own rules. Um, and so we had a council that since then, and particularly since 2017, 2018, prosecuted more companies successfully than any other council in the country who have really beefed up the compliance and monitoring team. So instead of the industry self-regulating, which was the mantra... Under the previous governments uh, and where the rules were set at central government, uh, councils stepped up and expanded um, their their monitoring and compliance team. You know, before they had two people in that period, and now they've got something like 12 or 13. Um, and the other thing is, council opposed those national rules that the previous national government set and uh, allowed the industry to set um, right from when they were proposed. You know, as a councillor back in 2010, we uh, sent letters to government at that time it got taken off Ministry for the Environment, given to MPI, who appointed industry people onto the working group to write the rules for themselves. Uh, And councillors all the way through opposed, as have hapu around the, the coast, saying actually those national rules aren't for purpose in a place like this with the massive erosion issues. We need to be able to have stricter rules in this region. And I think that's what the report has come out and found in a broader sense, but it's really overlooked um, the good work that council's done in the recent years, so I don't think there's any need for a commissioner to be appointed. And the other point is hearings commissioners, none of these consents were getting to hearings because they're all permitted under the national rules. Uh, So it's a bit of a, yeah, they missed the mark on that one, I think.
0: Okay, the catchment-by-catchment basis approach that you mentioned uh, earlier, Philip, how will that work? Why would that work in this case, do you think? Because um,
6: there was a very broad brush to plantation, post-cycle Ebola, we, we now know that um, a, a lot of steep faces should never have been planted in pine. Um, the reality is they were. Um, what Cyclone and Gabriel uh, showed really was unprecedented failure of entire slopes with uh, standing trees. And that's really what um, increased the impact on infrastructure over and above just traditional forestry slash the result of harvesting. So you had failure of trees as a result of land failure. And, uh, you know, the impact was devastating. So I think we've got to take that same approach on a catchment by catchment basis. And that would not only determine how that block would be harvested, but also what parts of it would be retired, Mm. what sort of vegetation would be planted there. And what we're now reflecting back to, uh, I guess the wisdom of cycling bowler is, we're going back to what probably should have been planted uh, subsequent to Cyclone What does that mean for timeline? Uh, th- this is going to take time. Uh, it's, uh, you know, there's no magic wand here. If we, uh, I guess, introduce the restrictions on, on the size of harvesting blocks, mm. what we're saying is we're going to leave these trees in the ground longer in these vulnerable slopes. They're going to get bigger, they're going to get heavier. So there are no easy answers, but I think a catchment-by-catchment risk assessment is what's needed. What I do know from the forestry industry, and not every forestry company is a member of the Eastern Wood Council, but the leaders, the environmental planners, are really happy with the report. Obviously, there's some detail that they want to have input into, mm. and I think this is this is the stage that we're at. We're not seeing the appendices until Friday this week, and I think that's going to provide context to the report that we saw on on Friday.
0: Manu, I think the report says five to ten years to act. How how realistic is that? Do you think?
8: As Philip said, you know, these are long term issues. It's taken a while to get to this point. The trees aren't going to go anywhere quickly. Um, but, uh, well, what some of the suggestions that we had were let's not plant any more pine. We don't need any more, What well, we need are incentives, particularly through the ETS, to uh, favour natives. Uh, and let's get those permanent, diverse native forests back on the land as quickly as possible. So rather than replanting in pine, we can do better than that. There's a move to talk about transition forests, you know, sort of some magic science that will allow pines to become natives. Uh, what everybody agrees, I think, around that is it's going to be expensive and we need mm. to set aside money for that process. So these trees aren't going to go away quickly. They're going to be part of our community for a long time, but there's a lot we can do in the interim, particularly when they've been harvested and also on pasture. You know, I think the the report missed the issue of farming um, and what we do with the erosion that's wow. caused on on farmland and, and steep erosion prone Pasture, so that's another area that can, you can see some real um, transition
0: quickly. Tēnā Manu. I think you mentioned issue about cost. There's also a cost in doing nothing, right? Ngā mihi nui Thank you, Manu, kedi joining us on Whakatāne, Philip, for joining us in the Studio. Tēnā rā. Yeah. Te kōrua, tāhi, kei tūtunu mai e ngai, we stay with us on uh, Tātātou tā, Hotaka Arai, tā tā Hui. He kōru rupu te kene. Mixing Scottish and Māori whakapapa, the Armstrong Brothers are taking on the world. For the Armstrong brothers from Rotorua, bagpipes and pipe bands have become a way of life. Now, the trio of brothers will compete against the world's best pipe bands at the World Pipe Band Championships in Scotland. a John Boynton.
7: There's no mistaking the haunting sound of bagpipes.
2: When you first hear it, you just know it's got a presence to it.
7: The Armstrong brothers
2: bringing the sound
7: of their Scottish tūpuna to their Tūranga Waiwai at Whakarewarewa village.
2: If you hear it played really well, it can really stir you up, I guess. (laughs) all sort of the same it's the the sound they produce.
7: Rotorua twins Manio and Natai Armstrong know their way around
2: a set of bagpipes.
0: It all looks a little bit scary when you look at this I guess for someone like me oh, who, yeah, who yeah. doesn't
2: know bagpipes. Yeah. There's a few parts to it this one's the bass reed
7: the 20-year-olds first started playing as teenagers after their parents, Leslie and Roger, signed them up. I sort of say to them, right, you need a sport
3: and an arty for the year. And they hadn't chosen anything. I said, if you don't choose, I'm going to put you into bagpipes.
7: But they quickly found their groove, and they've been playing for seven years. When they first started, it was pretty awful. Yeah. <laughs> And that's, like, uh, most people that are in those bands, once they get hooked, yeah. they're in it for life, really.
2: And the twins are hooked on bagpipes. I guess when you when you start getting better, you can appreciate the sound. You can just hear the different parts of the pipes.
7: Have you had any noise complaints?
2: <laughs> no, no. We're lucky. Our neighbours only ever seem to love it. <laughs>
7: the bagpipes are taking them around the country. Today, the boys are in Wellington, practising with the National Youth Pipe Band. What did your mates at high school think when you told them you played the bagpipes?
2: I never told them. I thought it was kind of embarrassing.
8: I think "embarrass" is the right word because you're walking around in kilts, and skirts, playing a noisy instrument.
7: Stuart McHale is a board member for the Royal New Zealand Pipe Band Association.
8: Now those times have changed. I think
7: people
2: like being a bit different and like being involved in more unusual things. We just thought it was just an instrument for all people to play at Anzac, and it's a lot bigger than that. Stuart, like the Armstrong brothers,
7: grew up in Rotorua, an area known for its kapahaka prowess but he says not all kids fit into that space.
8: If you've got a stink voice and you can't find your space in music because kapahaka is largely up on stage and singing, so for quiet people, this is their way to, to be loud without sort of using their vocal cords.
7: Did the boys prefer wearing a kilt or a pu They're still part of a the group. They're still
3: wearing a type of dress yeah they <laughs> yeah. would prefer to wear a kilt yeah. to a pew pew I did kapaka until like year eight and then this sort of just took over
7: their younger brother Kaido also plays in the pipe band as a drummer
3: Yeah, it's just met lots of new people from, like all over the country and all over the
7: world and he sees the appreciation his whanau have for the music
3: Whenever we go to events we always have like aunties and uncles there and like, oh can you play, play for us oh they just think it's cool yeah it's kind of like merging two cultures i guess i can tell that they are really proud of being Māori, and you know armstrong armstrong you can't get too yeah. much more scottish than an armstrong ceremony like that
7: today the brothers are representing their farno at the national anzac day service it's being held at the Pukeahu National War Memorial in Wellington. It's a sight which always makes their parents proud. Oh, I just love it, yeah, yeah. just watching them mm. and. Mm. With, Handsome. Yeah. This event is leading up to the biggest competition on the pipe band calendar, the World Pipe Band Championships in Scotland.
2: It's like Matatini in New Zealand. It's a prestigious. It's a prestigious contest.
7: The Armstrong brothers will compete in Glasgow with the Auckland District's pipe band.
2: We're pretty excited to go. The only ones in our band who haven't been to Scotland and it looks like it's going to be quite an exciting trip.
3: They watch a lot of fight bands on TV, yeah, especially the ones in Scotland that have been taking out you know, the championships.
7: 150 top bands will be competing. There'll be tens of thousands of spectators. Great emotional impact. And it's
2: broadcast on the BBC. Even if we place top ten, it would be a huge achievement. Stuart hopes
7: other young Māori follow suit and can be inspired by the Armstrong brothers.
8: It's about soaking up the experience. It's about representing your family, representing your mum and dad back at home and being up on TV and enjoying it.
7: And they'll be taking a piece of home with them. You're always proud of your children,
3: aren't you? And you're always there, hopefully, to encourage them. We've sort of got to the stage now where we have to back off. (laughs) Because they're getting older. And they're finding their own path with their music. But we're always number one supporters. Yes.
0: too much. Go the Armstrongs! Ko hiki hui mō te neira. You can view all of today's stories on our social media platforms, including Facebook and YouTube, as well as on newshub.co.nz. Kia hoki ake anō ki tātātou whakatau aki e kienei. Kia mau i te tūranga o Taputupo Atea. Hau hui e, taiki e. Atipun na faka tonga reoa te hui itau toku